Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Gary Forsyth for a conversation about the myths and legends of the founding of Rome. Dr. Forsyth is Associate Professor, Department of History at Texas Tech University, based in the U.S., He's the author of many publications over his career on Roman history, including the book, A Critical History of Early Rome, From Prehistory to the First Punic War, which was published by the University of California Press. Welcome to the call, Gary. Okay, yep, I'm here. So when it comes to certain historical subjects, there is ample evidence that gives people a picture of what occurred. When it comes to the founding of Rome, why is there not a lot of concrete evidence? Well, the first, the first people to start writing history in any kind of systematic fashion were the Greeks. And they don't really get started on that until the 400s BC. Hmm. Um, and the, the Romans don't really start making a major impact um, in sort of the larger Mediterranean area hmm. uh, until sometime after that. It's not until like maybe the late 300s, early 200s BC when the Romans are uh, rapidly conquering Italy that they, they really start coming to the attention of the Greeks. And the Romans themselves did not start trying to do any kind of systematic reconstruction hmm. of their past until about 200 B.C. Um, hmm. And by that point, by let's say 200 B.C., the Romans had already defeated Carthage in the two great wars that they fought against Carthage, the First and Second Punic War, that made the Romans the masters of the western half of the Mediterranean, and they were just getting ready to enter into the sort of Greek Hellenistic eastern half mm -hmm. uh, to dominate that in the course of about a generation or so. Uh, so the Romans don't really start doing any kind of serious reconstruction in their past until they are already a fairly dominant power in the mm. Mediterranean. And by that point, their past went back for quite some time. The Republic began around 500 B.C. Mm -hmm. uh, and before that was the period of the, of the kings. Um, and exactly how long that lasted, we don't really know. The Romans later uh, sort of worked out their own reconstruction of that mm -hmm. and um, thought that the, the period of the kings and thus the beginning of the city started somewhere around 750 B.C. Mm -hmm. So just on the basis of that, you can see that the uh, if the Romans are not beginning to do sort of serious historical reconstruction until, say, 200 B.C., mm -hmm. There's 500 years or so <clears throat> between the beginning of the city uh, and when they actually start trying to uh, figure out what actually happened in their past. And so they really, for, mm. the, for the period of early kings, they had, they had very, very, very little information at all. Mm. Uh, and um, for the period of the early republic uh, in the 400s, they still had pretty scanty records. So it's not until you get down into the 300s that they were able in these later times to start mm. uh, sort of documenting and being able to reconstruct things with, with any degree of, uh, 
of certainty. So the really early mm. stuff, like the foundation of Rome and the pre-early kings, is uh, is largely um, stuff that um, uh, was was based on, on virtually nothing, and, and mm. in many senses, it's just sort of fairy tale mm. stuff. Mm. And you make some interesting um, points there. And maybe for background, before we get into some of the legends and myths around the founding of Rome, what what do we know about um, the types of people that were settled in the peninsula prior to Rome? There were a whole bunch of people. <clears throat> mm-hmm. If you um, uh, hmm. if you look at a, uh, you, you can find some. You can find a couple of these examples on the, let's say on a, on a website mm-hmm. uh, if you do a search for something like uh, ling- uh, uh, early early languages of Italy or something like that mm-hmm. um, there, there's a particular website uh, that's devoted to um, the study of what we call the italic languages the italic is one of the uh, 11 subdivisions of indo-european uh, languages and mm-hmm. Latin, of course, was the was the dominant one in in the ancient world because of the Romans. Uh, but before the Romans came along and conquered the peninsula and eventually Romanized it, there were all kinds of languages uh, spoken in different areas of Italy. Italy, Italy is a fairly mountainous. Uh, there's there's a big flat triangular uh, plain way up in the north, the Po Valley. Um, but other than that. Um, the Apennines run the whole length of, of Italy, so there's a lot of mountains, and, in, and even mm-hmm. in places where there are relatively low areas, there's still quite a bit of hill country and, and mountains and such. And so, uh, as the population inhabiting Italy developed over centuries and centuries of, of prehistory, those little areas developed their own, the, the populations living in those little areas developed their own sort of ethnic identities mm-hmm. and uh, and also spoke their own distinctive languages <clears throat> and so for example the Etruscans who were the immediate neighbors uh, to the north mm-hmm. of the Romans they, they were the only ones living in Italy who spoke a non-Indo-European language mm-hmm. uh, the Romans of course spoke Latin and they, they lived in a little bitty area that today we call well, we pronounce it as Latium, L-A-T-I-U-M, Latium, mm-hmm. in English, modern-day Lazio, L-A-C-I-O. That was the homeland of, of the Latin speakers. That, that was a fairly small area. But mm-hmm. then there were other areas uh, where different other languages uh, were spoken. Umbrian was spoken up in sort of the uh, northerly areas of the Apennines. And then there, uh, Oscan was a fairly... Uh, common italic language spoken uh, throughout much of central and southern italy and then there are these other uh, other uh, sort of related dialects so when the when the romans uh, but before the romans start conquering italy mm-hmm. um italy was a real ethnic and linguistic patchwork uh, lots mm-hmm. of people it's very different from let's say um, greece uh, at the same time at the same time in greece mm-hmm. Uh, the, the whole area of Greece was populated by Greek speakers. That they had dialects in Greece, uh, Greek, but uh, that there wasn't anything in, in Greece to match the uh, uh, tremendous linguistic and ethnic diversity that uh, was the situation before the Romans conquer 
that whole area. And then mm. once the Romans do, eventually it takes several centuries for those languages to die out and for the people to uh, to adopt Latin as their language and for all of those people mm. to basically become Romanized. So that's sort of the first major step for towards the Romans um, you know, creating what eventually becomes a Roman Empire. Mm. Do we have evidence that the the Greeks were settled in the peninsula peninsula as well uh, oh, yeah. before oh, Rome? Yeah, yeah. In, in, in the in the what we call the archaic period, mm-hmm. which is roughly the period that the Romans thought of as the early kings, roughly about eight hundred to five hundred BC. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the Greeks start off that period around eight hundred BC as very very simple villagers. They're they're living really really in a very sort of fairly poor. Uh, subsistence, uh, uh, agricultural and um, uh, animal herding existence, uh, and within the, the space of a couple of centuries, they uh, produce a very sophisticated culture. They, they develop the first uh, alphabet in world history. They become a fairly literate people, the first people to do so. Um, and they, they start. <coughs> Uh, increasing as a population, and as they do, the poor land of Greece is unable to sustain that population, so they engaged throughout the archaic period in widespread colonization, and they mm-hmm. they succeeded in pretty much taking over the eastern half of the island of Sicily, and they established colonies all along the southern shore of Italy, all the way up to the Bay of Naples, about mm-hmm. 100 miles, let's say, south of Rome. So yeah, so once the Romans uh, start becoming a fairly organized community by the end of the period of the kings, the Greeks have become a major presence uh, in central Italy and are already beginning to uh, to influence uh, Roman uh, society and, and, and culture in, uh, in major ways. And it's during that period then that, that, the, uh, that, that Greeks first uh, as they come into contact with, with the, all of these non-Greek peoples, mm-hmm. not only in Italy, but every, everywhere else in the Mediterranean where they colonized and did trade, uh, the, the Greeks started making up all these stories uh, to explain where all these different non-Greek peoples came from. And they usually did so by mm-hmm. tying them into their uh, great important myths of the, the distant past, Jason and the Argonauts sailing around, doing things, Heracles, as they call him, uh, traveling around all over the place, doing various things. Uh, people, uh, other uh, heroes, Greek heroes uh, from the uh, aftermath of the Trojan War, sailing around and settling down in various places. And that's generally how they came up with uh, an explanation as to how the whole Mediterranean world that they knew about was populated by, by non-Greek peoples. And, and the Romans uh, become part of that sort of larger Greek explanation as to the uh, non-Greek ethnic uh, diversity uh, throughout the Mediterranean. Mm. So let's get into then um, some of the the myths and and uh, legends behind the forming of um, of uh, Rome. And obviously, they don't have to be circumscribed only to what may have come from Greece. But what are what are the what are some of the more common tales that are out there about how Rome originally uh, settled? Okay, well, um, we, uh, 
the, the, the catalog, it, it, going through what we now have mm-hmm. surviving from ancient sources, we can put together somewhere between about 50 and 60 different versions. Isn't that incredible? Of Rome's foundation. I mm-hmm. mean, that's just amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of these come fairly early on as, as the Greeks are sort of trying to figure out, you know, who are these Romans and different writers came up with different uh, explanations and guesses and this sort mm-hmm. of thing. But anyway, that, that brings me to one thing, and that is um, if any of your listeners uh, really want to do some uh, some reading on, uh, let's say, the, the Greek and Roman uh, ancient world, mm-hmm. one of the pl- best places to start, I think, uh, are the parallel lives uh, of an ancient writer by the name of Plutarch. Uh, he was a Greek mm-hmm. philosopher. He lived during the early days of the what we call the Roman Principate. He lived, born probably around 45 AD, died probably around 120 AD. He was primarily interested in philosophy, but he was an extremely learned man, uh, was very wide read, widely mm-hmm. read, and um, he eventually decided that he would write a series of biographies. And we possess now 50 biographies written by Plutarch. And you can actually buy a single volume in the modern library edition that contains all 50 of Plutarch's lives. They're called parallel lives because most of the lives he's got, uh, he writes a biography of a Greek, famous uh, Greek, and then he finds a Roman who had a very similar career, uh, and he he writes Mm -hmm. uh, his life, and then at the end of writing the two biographies, he usually writes up a little comparison between the two men. And primarily what Plutarch was interested in, in, in doing with his lives was he was interested in studying human nature, human behavior, human character, and seeing how people made choices, either good or bad choices, uh, uh, throughout their lives. And so he, he saw biography as, as a way of giving people good guidance uh, as uh, uh, to what to do uh, and what not to do. Uh, and he's an absolutely excellent writer. Uh, he was very widely read and drew upon sources that we no longer have. But anyway, one of the biographies that he wrote uh, was a biography of of Romulus, Rome's uh, supposed uh, founder. Mm -hmm. Um, And in the very beginning of that biography, uh, before he starts talking, before he starts telling his readers what came to be Mm -hmm. the standard uh, Roman foundation story of Romulus and Remus and stuff. He he sets out, I think it's like 13 or 14 different other versions of Rome's foundation hmm. um, that uh, were, were in circulation before uh, eventually this Romulus-Remus story uh, finally gets uh, um, uh, it takes on all of its uh, all of its uh, various features, mm-hmm. but anyway, one of, one of the things that most of these early Greek writers did in, in trying to explain where different peoples came from was they use a rather simple technique of doing it, and that is let's say um, let's let's say they that they wanted to explain uh, where the city of Narbo came from. Okay, so so they say, okay, well, Narbo was founded by um, a, a Greek hero of the distant past named Narbon, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, and um, so Rome 
the, the ancient name for Rome was Roma, R-O-M-A. And so the earliest stories that we have coming from the Greeks about Rome involves a woman by the name of Roma. There's a whole series of different uh, different versions of this, but mm-hmm. anyway, one of them is something runs something like this. Uh, way back, way way back at the time of the Trojan War, uh, when the Greeks finally succeeded in capturing Troy, <clears throat> um, and uh, a small remnant of the Greeks, uh, excuse me, of the Trojans uh, escaped. Mm-hmm. Uh, under the leadership of um, one of the uh, Trojan heroes, um, Aeneas, A-E-N-E-A-S. Um, they sailed around here and there and all over the place till finally they wound up in, uh, in uh, central Italy. Uh, and by that point, uh, many of the women uh, were tired of um, being dragged around all over the place and s- s- stopping here and stopping there and, and, and everything. And so one of the women, one of the Trojan women by the name of Roma, uh, decided she had enough of this stuff, and so she set fire to the ships uh, mm. so that they couldn't sail off anywhere else. And so, so the people settled down uh, and uh, established a new community, uh, and they named it after her. And so, so it was called Roma. So that that was one of the um, one of the explanations. Mm. And another one is that it wasn't uh, a, a Trojan uh, people who did that, but it was one of the Greek heroes who had some captive Trojan women with him sailing around and uh, they came when they came to Italy uh, Roma burned the ships and they settled down um, there so that that was uh, one of the sort of common elements in some of the the earliest mm-hmm. stories about um, about Rome were those the couple you cited there were those um, circa before the Romulus and Remus story came about oh yeah yeah okay. yeah it takes it takes a while actually share more the the episode obviously isn't about plutarch but but it, he's a very cornerstone figure it sounds like in um some of the myths and legends because he documented some of them uh, during his life can, can you share the kind of the circa when he when he lived and also his yeah. and also his um what we know about how frequently he was in the italian peninsula did he actually live there or did he just vi- visit there frequently etc well, he was born around 45 A.D. And by that time, the okay. Roman Empire, one called the Principate, was in existence. It's under its first dynasty of Julio-Claudian emperors. He was born 
He had been born during the reign of the Emperor Claudius, uh, and we think he died probably sometime around 120 mm -hmm. A.D. Uh, that would have been uh, just a little bit into the reign of the Emperor Hadrian. Mm -hmm. um, he came from this small town called Chironia, located in uh, central Greece. It was just a little bit west of Thebes, where that was sort of the biggest city near near where he lived that the Chironia was a pretty small town um, and he, he was uh, from a fairly fairly well-to-do uh, wealthy family uh, we know that he, he came to Rome and, and spent some serious time there mm -hmm. um, uh, teaching philosophy uh, he, he learned Latin um, and he was an incredibly prolific writer not only did he write these 50 biographies that i mentioned but he wrote um even uh, more stuff uh in a series of essays on about all kinds of topics and those are usually grouped together called the morale or the moral essays uh, but like i say he was an extremely well educated man uh, he was very widely read and uh, so much of what he read no longer exists to us today uh, and uh, when he was writing his biographies of the Greeks and Romans uh, he, he winds up reproducing a lot of very valuable information that no longer uh, survived to us um, from the sources of information that, that, that he read and he quite often cites uh, you know, authors that, that he that he's read, you know, he'll, he'll cite so and so for this particular point or, or whatever. So he's he's really a very valuable uh, source of information. And like I say, he's an in incredibly good writer, uh, and his biographies uh, just read really nice. Uh, he, he was one of the most popular ancient uh, writers. Uh, let's say starting in oh, uh, during the period of the Enlightenment. Let's say say from like the from about sixteen hundred. Uh, up to, well, maybe even up, up into the uh, early 1900s. He was one of the most popular uh, uh, mm -hmm. writers from uh, from antiquity because of his uh, his parallel lives. Mm. And he's very entertaining mm. and very informative. What are some of the um, other common um, tales or, or legends that are out there? Do you want to tell the, the common stories behind... The common story of Romulus and Remus. Okay, yeah, I can do that. All right, so the uh, the Romulus Remus story is basically this: <clears throat> um, in very early times, there was this uh, small community located near what was the later site of Rome. Rome wasn't founded yet, of course, and it was called Alba, sometimes called Alba Longa, uh, because it was supposedly situated on a on a long ridge of land um and um for generations there had been a series of kings there mm -hmm. and eventually in, in the father-son succession and eventually uh two brothers um shared the kingship one was named numator the other named amulius and um, eventually, however, Amulius, who's described as sort of the evil brother, uh, deposed his, um, his good brother, Numitor, and took over the entire, uh, kingship. 
And in order to secure his complete uh, control over the kingship, he wanted to make sure that none of Numitor's descendants uh, would be a rival. And at the time, Numitor only had a daughter. So, uh, so Amulius made Numitor's daughter, whose name is variously given, but usually her name is Rhea, R-H-E-A, Sylvia, two names, um, made her a priestess, um, and the, uh, one of the conditions of, the, of her priesthood was uh, she had to, um, uh, she could not be uh, married at all, could not have children. Uh, but anyway, uh, one day as she's going off to um, draw water from a well, uh, the uh, the god Mars, uh, who's a war god, uh, the Latin people, uh, the elder, fell in love with her, had his way with her. She becomes pregnant and gives birth to twins. And when Amulius finds out, he orders that the two newborn twins be uh, cast uh, into the nearby river, the Tiber River, uh, to drown. <clears throat> so he orders a servant to take them to the river. He takes them to the river. He's carrying them in a basket sort of thing or like a trough or whatever. Uh, but instead of uh, throwing it way out into the river, he just sort of sets it down into the shallow water and walks away. Uh, and uh, the, um, uh, the the trough thing uh, comes, comes ashore uh, and... Um, uh, a, a, a she-wolf happens by and hears the crying of the babies and uh, so she uh, licks them off uh, and um, also nurses them uh, and as she's doing so uh, another um, cousin happens to be walking by uh, and he uh, he then takes the two children home and, and raises them as his sons <clears throat> and then when they finally uh, reached their early adulthood, um, uh, one of the, the, the uh, one, of, one of them, of course, is named Romulus, and it was named Remus. Mm -hmm. uh, Remus happens to be captured um, by the uh, some of the um, uh, servants of Amulius, because Romulus and Remus have been engaging in sort of a sheep wrestling. And Romulus then um, uh, carries out a rescue mission for his brother, uh, and in the process, um, uh, uh, Numitor um, uh, figures out through, uh, through various things uh, that uh, these uh, two young men, Romulus and Remus, are his, his grandsons. So then, so then they all plot together to overthrow Amulius, the evil king, and they, they kill him. And so then Romulus and Remus uh, then um, uh, established their grandfather, Numitor, as the um, sole king of Alba. Mm -hmm. And so then they decide that they're going to go off and found their own uh, settlement. And so they, they go off to the nearby uh, site uh, where they had been uh, exposed at the Tiber River, uh, as uh, as infants, uh, and so they they decide they're now going to found the city of uh, of Rome. Okay, and then there there's uh, different versions of the story. What happens next? Uh, one version is that um, uh, 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 Romulus took up 
uh, a position. Oh, they, they couldn't. Excuse me. They, they, they couldn't decide which of the two ought to be king. Uh, they, 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 they decided they were not going to be joint kings, um, and so they were going to engage in a form of divination to see which of the two of them would be designated by the gods uh, to be the uh, king. So they decided they're going to do this through augury, uh, the, the flight of birds. So Romulus uh, situates himself on the Palatine Hill, and uh, Romulus, Remus situates himself on the Aventine Hill nearby, uh, and they start watching the sky for birds. And um, uh, Remus sees uh, 12 uh, birds appear. Uh, I think they're described in Livy's account as vultures, I think. Uh, and um, uh, shortly after that, uh, Romulus sees twice that number. He sees 24 birds. Mm-hmm. Um, and Remus claims that he should be king because he saw the he saw birds first. Uh, Romulus says, no, well, I saw twice as many birds as you did, uh, even though it's second. And so they, they, they still couldn't agree. And, and a fight breaks out between the followers of the two uh, brothers. And uh, Remus is killed. Um, and so Romulus is left to become king. That, that's one version. Uh, another another version is that uh, both of them were fortifying their own little uh, settlement. Romulus had his own settlement, and uh, Remus had his own settlement. Uh, and Remus, uh, Romulus comes over to see what his brother is up to and sees him and his uh, supporters uh, building this uh, fortification wall, and uh, uh, Romulus... No, no, excuse me, I got, I got it, it's, it's the other way around. Yeah. Uh, Remus comes over to see what Romulus is doing, uh, and uh, uh, Remus makes fun at the uh, uh, at the wall that's being built because he says it's, it's nothing uh, nothing to uh, hold back any any uh, defenders, and to, to prove that, he jumps over the wall that they're in the process of building. Uh, and, and Romulus, uh, as a... Um, example of what's going to happen to anyone who tries to uh, cross his wall uh, immediately uh, kills his brother that, that that's another uh, version of the story that, that apparently was uh, came into existence in order to explain in Roman tradition the uh, the sanctity of what's known as the pomerium the uh, the border around the uh, uh, community mm. um uh, so anyway, there's there's different versions of uh, exactly how Remus gets eliminated. But anyway, he, he gets eliminated uh, at, at the end of the story, uh, and then uh, uh, Romulus is left uh, one last man standing uh, to uh, uh, become Rome's uh, first king. So that that's uh, pretty much the, uh, the the story. Hmm. And you had mentioned uh, Livy uh, in your answer. There was uh, Livy the oldest account, the oldest uh, writer who writes about the story, or is there someone older than uh, Livy? Oh, no. Oh, no. Livy comes at the very end. Um, the, the actual story that I, I just set out there with the, with the Romulus and Remus and the uh, the, the, the two brothers, uh, kings of Alba and all that sort of stuff, mm-hmm. um, that doesn't seem to, to come into existence until... Uh, sometime, like I say, around the may, maybe uh, mid-200s uh, to late-200s B.C., and according to Plutarch, he said that this story, that is what we think of as the standard Romulus Remus story, was first told among the Greeks 
by a man named Diocles, D-I-O-C-L-E-S, a Peparethus, P-E-P-A-R-E-T-H-O-S, a small island in the uh, in the Aegean off the eastern coast of uh, mainland Greece. We know nothing about Diocles of Peparethus. He's only mentioned there by Plutarch. Um, anyway, uh, Plutarch says that the, the, the story was first told by Diocles of Peparethus, but was followed in, in its main outlines by Fabius Pictor. Well, Fabius Pictor was uh, uh, the, the first Roman to actually attempt to write a Roman history. Hmm. Uh, and he, we, we, know, we know he lived sometime in the uh, uh, mid to late 200s, uh, BC, whether he lived beyond 200 BC, we don't know, uh, but we know that he was he was alive uh, and probably uh, during his adult years between the period of about let's say 225 at least down to 210 and possibly uh, beyond. But anyway, this man Fabius Pictor, who came from a very prestigious Roman aristocratic family. Uh, was the first Roman to try to write uh, a history of Rome, and he, he, he began it with the uh, with this whole uh, foundation story uh, in, involving uh, Romulus and Remus. And if uh, Plutarch is telling us the, the, the truth, uh, he, he takes this from uh, Diocles of, uh, of Peparethus. Okay, well, following uh, Fabius Pictor, and he wrote in Greek. They did write in Latin. Uh, mm-hmm. and the first several Romans who attempted to write a history of Rome actually wrote in Greek. Uh, it's not until we get down to about 150 BC uh, that we have a Roman uh, writing a history of Rome in Latin for the very first time. Uh, but anyway, there were there were about oh about uh, a dozen to maybe 15 or so uh, Romans who uh, wrote histories of Rome uh, spread out over about two centuries before we get to Livy. Uh, Livy Livy comes at the very tail end of this long um, tradition of writing uh, Roman uh, history. He was born in 59 uh, BC uh, and probably didn't begin writing until about 30 BC. So he, he was writing about, let's say, 200 years after Fabius Pictor, and in a sense, Livy's history was so successful in terms of its uh, literary uh, quality and its ability to tell stories and, and things that uh, Livy, uh, uh, Livy's account of Rome uh, during the, uh, the, the early kings uh, and for the period of uh, much of the Republic uh, pretty much became canonical. Um, and uh, sort of drove all the others uh, out of existence and most other Romans uh, who engaged in historical writing after that point uh, turned their attention to writing other kinds of uh, history. Now, we don't have any of these earlier accounts before Livy um, except in the fashion of authors that we do have, such as Plutarch, who wrote uh, sometime after Livy, telling us things such as Diocles of Peperitus is the first one to tell the Romulus Remus story, that sort of thing. So we have bits and pieces of information about these earlier predecessors of Livy, 
but it, it's all fairly uh, scrappy stuff. But we do have Livy's account. Uh, so as a result, in, in terms of the prose literature, uh, Livy's account is um, uh, became sort of the uh, the, the, the standard and is still uh, sort of the, the standard account that most people think of today when we uh, talk about the, um, the, the Romulus uh, Remus story. But, but there are other accounts as well. Okay. Earlier in the conversation, you briefly mentioned the Trojan soldier Aeneas. Is he paramount or instrumental in any of the prevalent stories of the founding of Rome? Yeah. In, in the, the final version that gets burnt out, it comes sort of the, the, the canonical version. Aeneas figures, he, he is central because the, what, what happens is that um, uh, I mentioned earlier that there's, there's these earlier Greek accounts that describe Rome being founded in a number of ways. Sometimes it's uh, the result of Greek heroes in the aftermath of the Trojan War wandering about. Uh, sometimes it's uh, in connection with the Trojans wandering about. And uh, when, when it's in connection with the Trojans, uh, usually the, 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 the person, um, the, the chief uh, figure in, in that uh, kind of story is this figure, Aeneas, A-E-N-E-A-S, because uh, according to uh, one line in um, Homer's Iliad, uh, Aeneas was... Um, uh, was going to be one of the very few uh, Trojans who actually survived the Greek capture and, and destruction of Troy. Um, and for some reason that we, we have no idea why, um, the, the, the Romans, when they finally uh, sort of work out their, their own, and, and are quite happy with their own version of how their city began, uh, rather than uh, having um, Greek heroes from the Trojan War coming to Italy uh, and eventually settling down there, they, the, the Romans instead latch on to Aeneas, the, the supposed um, one great uh, Trojan hero of the war who actually survived the war. <clears throat> and uh, so, so the Romans, when they when they finally come up with the Romulus Remus story and, and, and are, are um, confronted with a number of different Greek accounts explaining how the city came about. The Romans, uh, for whatever reason, they, they pick uh, Trojan Aeneas uh, to be the one who leads a band of people to central Italy to settle down, uh, and eventually that results in the... Um, uh, foundation of Rome in various ways. Sometimes it's Rome, uh, the lady who burns the ships, or uh, Aeneas uh, has a son uh, or a grandson named Romus, uh, who, uh, who becomes the, uh, uh, the eponymous uh, founder of, of Rome, and there's just all sorts of different variations of, uh, of that. But eventually, of course, the Romans, uh, historians realize that there's a there's a major chronological problem um, in trying to establish the foundation of Rome in the immediate aftermath of the Trojan War. So they have to come up with other things to uh, uh, make the whole story work chronologically. Hmm. So is this uh, 
it's fascinating. Is is this area of research? Is this something that um, there's still discoveries happening all the time, or uh, once in a while, or is this subject uh, reached a plateau? Well, um, we have basically two major sources of information uh, in dealing with these early times. We have the information that's given to us by uh, surviving ancient literary sources. That's pretty much a closed set of data. Um, uh, And we are, it's probably very unlikely that we're going to come upon anything that's going to add significantly to that. Uh, there's, There's always the possibility that uh, let's say in Egypt or papyri uh, that have been preserved in the uh, dry sands of Egypt have been preserved for uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years um, can be unearthed uh, and uh, there have been some pretty spectacular discoveries uh, from the sands of Egypt. Uh, Aristotle's Constitution of Athens was one of the the early ones uh, back in the 1890s I think it was uh, and there's been uh, fragments of uh, uh, lost Greek poetry found. There's been a, lar- a, a major play of uh, uh, the uh, uh, Athenian uh, comic uh, playwright Menander that's been discovered, uh, and uh, some fragments of historical accounts and this sort of thing. Uh, but um, our chances of, of finding anything really big um, uh, along those lines that's going to contribute to the already set of data that we have from our ancient literary sources concerning, let's say, uh, early Roman stuff, that that's, that's, uh, that's probably never going to happen. Um, there was one uh, interesting um, uh, discovery that was made back in the, I think, the 1970s at... Uh, excavate uh, that there was a, I think it was a new hotel uh, that was going to be constructed um, in eastern Sicily near Mount Etna mm-hmm. and it was uh, in the uh, in the area of the ancient uh, Greek city of Tauromenium and uh, as they were uh, I guess digging um, to lay the foundations for the hotel or I think it was a hotel um they uh, came upon the uh, remains of an ancient library there. Um, And one of the interesting things that they found uh, in the library was um, that they they found uh, some of the interior walls of the library. And uh, ancient libraries were very different from our libraries today. We we have, uh, we have a, totally different kind of book form uh, that um, that the ancient Greeks and Romans had, at least up until late antiquity, uh, because they wrote on papyrus scrolls. And so <clears throat> instead of having um, uh, bound books like we do on, on bookshelves, um, they instead tended to have either bookcases uh, with um, uh, papyrus scrolls uh, laying on the on, on the shelves, or that they would have walls uh, constructed with niches in them, so you could stash the um, you, you could lay the, the papyrus scroll down um, 
in, in these uh, in these little uh, spaces in, in the in the shelf. But anyway, in in mm -hmm. the uh, on the wall uh, of what uh, remained uh, in this library, they found uh, that there were like these painted labels. So if, if you can imagine uh, an interior wall of a building that's got these niches or little recesses built in it where you would lay your papyrus scrolls. Uh, and then um, above the niche, someone would paint like a label uh, so that you could walk around the room and you could decide, okay, uh, I want to read this book. And, and you could find the book because there, there'd be this painted uh, label on the uh, uh, above the niche where, where the book was, was stashed. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so the, one of the things that, that uh, uh, was found on this wall uh, was a painting uh, and it simply said something like, uh, uh, Gaius, Fabius, Tictorinus, the Roman, wrote, um, the, uh, the, 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 uh, um, the, the, the wandering of Aeneas, um, and the, the, the arrival of, of, of Hercules, uh, and after that, and, uh, and long after that, um, uh, described <clears throat> uh, Romulus uh, and Remus, uh, 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 who ruled uh, Rome. And that's all it says. Hmm. So <laughs> that doesn't really tell us much of anything. <laughs> uh, but so, so that that's... Like I said, we have two sources of information. One, one is this ancient literary stuff, and the ancient literary stuff is not likely to expand uh, because we've, we've pretty much discovered everything that we're going to discover, mm. probably, unless there's something really astounding that happens to turn up from uh, the sands of Egypt in the form of a papyrus of a lost historical account or something. But it's not likely to happen. Um, the other source of information that we have, of course, for, for earlier times is archaeological information. Um, and that, 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 that is always increasing. Um, and for early Rome, uh, it's, it, it increases at an extremely, um, slow and rather fortuitous, uh, way, uh, because, uh, carrying out excavations, um, uh, at least in, in Rome itself, is very difficult to do, uh, getting down at least to the lowest levels, because Rome has been such a uh, heavily uh, inhabited uh, site uh, for, for a very, very long period of time, and now it's built over so massively that it's very difficult to get uh, governmental permission uh, to carry out any, any kind of major excavation uh, at all. I mean, excavations uh, are done, um, and most of the stuff that is done um, is done in relationship to the later, much more document, uh, much uh, much better documented uh, periods, uh, and not very much uh, is done that gets down into the lowest levels uh, where we can actually get uh, some kind of information on uh, sort of the earliest days of um, of habitation there. But it, it happens, um, and, and it's, uh, um, I mean, if, if you look at the the overall history of, let's say, the archaeology 
of uh, of early Rome from uh, let's say going back to uh, say the 1870s uh, when Italy became a unified nation for the first time in modern times um, up to the present day. So we're talking about a period of about 150 years. Uh, there's been a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff that that's, uh, that has happened. The difficulty, of course, is that um, the archaeological data that that we uh, that that that, uh, that we have uh, basically relates to what remains and what can be detected now after so uh, long a period of time, um, having to do with the. Uh, uh, the, the way of life back in those times. I mean, the, 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 there are no, uh, you know, neat uh, inscriptions um, that we're ever going to find uh, dating back to that, that early period of time because in the earliest days, the, the Romans were um, pretty much illiterate. Um, and uh, writing was uh, used only very in a very, very limited uh, fashion. Um, so the uh, the, ar- the archaeological evidence largely reveals conditions of people's way of life at that time, and it's very very difficult to have the archaeology uh, actually uh, uh, sort of intersect very neatly uh, with what the ancient literary uh, sources. Uh, tell us, and what the literary literary sources are telling us um, are things that uh, precede the ancient literary material by centuries themselves. And so, the um, there's a real difficulty, of course, in evaluating the uh, reliability of the ancient literary stuff because it it comes so much later than. Um, uh, the, the actual events described. It, it, it would be as if today, let's say, um, uh, in, in the absence of all, almost uh, no documentation, uh, someone would attempt to uh, write a history of the, uh, let's say, the European uh, settlement pattern um, of, um, of North America, going back to, you know, say, from Columbus uh, up, up until the maybe the early 1600s or something, uh, you know, that happened like, you know, uh, 500 to 400 years ago. Uh, and if we didn't have any kind of minute documentation or any of that stuff, uh, we, we wouldn't have much much uh, information to really uh, figure it all out. Archaeology uh, could tell us things about it because we'd be digging up artifacts from uh, people coming in from... Uh, uh, from Europe, uh, you know, with their with their their own uh, technology and uh, um, way of making things and such, but uh, uh, in the absence of any, any kind of clearly written records, uh, it'd be very difficult to uh, sort of puzzle everything out. You've been uh, studying this topic and uh, peripheral topics for literally de- decades from a scholarly. Uh, level personally, what has kept you captivated on on Rome all these years, Gary? Well, I've actually <laughs> moved on to some other things. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I started off uh, way way 
back uh, in my undergraduate years mm -hmm. uh, in college. And I, that, that's when I it was first started getting interested in ancient history. Uh, and then when I um, started my, my um, early, uh, early graduate work, <clears throat> I got uh, interested in um, uh, early Rome because there's so many nasty problems that uh, are uh, almost unsolvable, uh, that they're so complicated. Um, and um, so I grew up, uh, and I'm talking as a grad student, sort of having the ambition mm -hmm. of working on all of that really nasty, problematic, puzzling stuff uh, and doing my best to untangle as much of that stuff as I possibly could. Mm -hmm. uh, and I had the ambition of writing a book that would uh, try to do that. Um, and that basically took, uh, well, um, that, that took decades. Hmm. Uh, it basically, if, if you sort of date all of that from, let's say, the beginning of my, my grad years, and going up to the publication of a critical history of early Rome, that's, that's basically about a 30-year period. Mm -hmm. uh, and before I wrote a critical history of early Rome, I wrote two other books that were actually necessary for me to write to sort out all kinds of stuff before I could even write a critical history of early Rome. Um, that gives you some idea as to the uh, tremendous amount of complexity all this stuff takes. Um, and so I spent a substantial portion of my um, uh, professional career devoted to that stuff. Uh, and in fact, right mm -hmm. now, I'm just finishing up a book review of a, of a book that just came out about another book about early Rome. And it's the first time I've returned to the subject in uh, actually quite, quite a few years. Um, but anyway, you spend 30 years on that mm -hmm. stuff. I, I guess it depends. It, it, it varies from scholar to scholar. Some, some scholars will get interested in one particular area, and they're happy to stay with that until the day they die. Um, I thought mm -hmm. that was probably would be what I would be like with, with early Rome. But actually, mm -hmm. once I got the critical history of early Rome completed, uh, I was so satisfied with it um, that I, would, I was willing to, I, I felt that I'd spent, I'd done about everything I possibly could mm. on the subject. And I'd worked over the, the information for years and years and years and given it thought that there really wasn't much more I could do with it. Um, and so, and, and there's been other things uh, along the lines that I've, I've gotten interested in. I'm very much interested in, I've always been interested in uh, ancient religion. Uh, so, um, in, in uh, uh, a critical history of early Rome was published in 2005. Uh, but long before I even published that, uh, going back to, I think, about 1991 or something like that, I had uh, already conceived the idea of writing this book on Roman religion. Mm -hmm. uh, but I was so busy doing all these other things, I couldn't get around to doing it. So it wasn't until I finished The Critical History of Very Rome that I finally got around to doing my book on Roman religion. That was like 15 years later. Uh, so finally in 2012... Uh, I pub finally succeeded in publishing uh, the, the one book that I've been planning on for many, many years, 
uh, on uh, on Roman religion, mm-hmm. um, and uh, so uh, and then in terms of my teaching, uh, I actually find I enjoy teaching Greek history much more than I uh, enjoy teaching Roman history. Although I enjoy the Roman Republic a lot, I just don't like teaching about the Roman Empire. Um, but um, I, I really, really enjoy teaching various aspects of, um, of Greek history. Uh, and right now, I'm, I've, uh, I'm getting myself involved in uh, uh, a number of, uh, of things, uh, both on the Greek uh, and even the ancient Near Eastern side of things. And so scholars, uh, if you live long enough, if a scholar lives long enough, uh, he, he, he might be happy to be uh, sort of settled down in one particular field. Others, scholars like myself, if, if you work through something really, really big and you've really done it exhaustively, you think you've done your, you're taking your best shot at it, uh, mm-hmm. oftentimes we move on to, uh, to other things that have interested us over the years, but we just haven't had the time to, uh, uh, to devote to it. Uh, and uh, so then, then you're, you're able in your later years to, uh, mm-hmm. to uh, sort of do these, these other sorts of things that have, have long interest you as well. But I, I've been fascinated in uh, Greek history as much as Roman history um, my entire um, career as an undergraduate student and uh, To spend over 30 years on a subject, uh, working with problems and issues and untangling them and ironing them out and reaching a point where you're satisfied with the work that you've done and the knowledge you have uh, really sounds like a tour de force. So a sincere congratulations, Gary, for all you've done on this uh, subject. I've really enjoyed speaking with you today. Thank you for coming on the show. The book, again, everybody, that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Forsyth wrote as an example, A Critical History of Early Rome, From Prehistory to the First Punic War. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Gary and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.